Climate Law Matters, Episode 2, Interview with Stephen Troman's KC, Part 2. Welcome back to our podcast. Our listener is no doubt aware that, given the environment cannot speak for itself or defend itself in court, a principal way of improving environmental standards and reducing greenhouse gas emissions is through public interest judicial reviews brought on behalf of campaigning groups and individuals. So Stephen, when considering a possible judicial review challenge, how do you go about formulating the grounds of challenge? Well, I wish I had the answer to that. I mean, I'd be in constant demand, wouldn't I, if I had the watertight answer to that all the time. But I think I love my clients, but actually the key problem is probably in some ways your clients who will rightly or wrongly believe that a very bad decision has been made in their own mind. They may well be right on that or they may not. But how do you translate that belief that a very bad decision has been made into attractive grounds sufficient, first of all, just to get you permission? to bring judicial review, and if you do get that permission to convince a fairly hard-nosed judge in the admin court or the planning court that you're not just wasting their time, but you have actually got something real to say. So I think you must always start by understanding the legal context for the decision or policy under challenge. Now, that may sound actually rather trite thing to say, but it's very important because your client won't necessarily, well, they may if they're a lawyer, but even then they may not have a very clear view of what it is they're actually challenging. There's been a decision made for an action taken, but how do you actually categorise what has been done? As lawyers say, what is the target for the judicial review? So generally there will be a legislative framework. There won't always be, but certainly in our area, you're generally talking about some form of legislative framework for the decisions that are made. What does that framework require from a decision maker? So, for example, does it involve the decision maker entering into consultation? Does it require specific matters to be taken into account by the decision maker? So you have to get that legal context. What are the key provisions of the legislation or what are the key principles of the common law that you're engaging with. And then, of course, you have to understand the facts. So that in itself can be very problematic because we're often here dealing with hugely lengthy and complex documents. So we look at all the suite of documents issued on Green Day, which we discussed in our previous podcast. You know, where on earth do you start? There are hundreds of thousands of paragraphs of document there which are the relevant paragraphs of those documents which one needs to draw out and refer to in your grounds and bring to the court's attention. So again, you have to have a pretty clear idea of what it is you are challenging. Are you challenging a decision to give permission for something, not to give permission for something? Are you challenging a policy which has been developed? Are you challenging a strategy which has been formulated to deliver policies? Are you challenging a simple failure to do something? So the government's been negligent in not doing something it should do in order to achieve climate goals. If you're concerned with an act, an active thing, rather than an omission, then it's very important to understand the process followed by the decision maker in reaching that decision. And I think 
courts are generally very concerned with the process. It's something they understand, and it's something that they feel they have a role in because of law going back for decades and centuries on fairness and due process, and because of more recent things that have been formulated in the law, such as principles of consultation, legitimate expectation, and so on. So you may be on quite fertile ground there, potentially. It does require information about the process, including what was considered, how it was considered, who was consulted, and a potential claimant, therefore, is going to be faced with an initial challenge of accessing the relevant documents. And it's quite interesting, I think, in the first climate plan challenge, how much really only came out by way of information as part of the litigation process by the government in its grounds of resistance to the claim, bringing out things which had previously been entirely unknown to the public. On that particular point, obviously there are challenges in respect of, for example, obtaining ministerial briefings prior to looking at issuing proceedings. But certainly a very kind of powerful tool in the armory has always been the environmental information regulations from 2004, which I'm sure our, our listeners are aware, the regulations essentially work like the Freedom of Information Act, and they give people the right to access environmental information. It's obviously apparent that there's some concern amongst campaigning groups in particular that the regulations may actually be automatically repealed by the sunset clause in the retained EU law revocation and reform bill. Indeed, as I understand it, I think Fish Legal has put a petition to Parliament in respect of these landmark regulations. And the government's response is, to say the least, ambiguous. It neither confirms nor denies whether the regulations will be retained, repealed or reformed. I think it'll be very interesting to follow what happens there, as you say, Stephanie. I think the principles of access to environmental information, public participation in decision-making and access to justice in environmental matters, which are all part of the Argus UNECE Convention on Public Participation, are potentially quite important here. There was a spate of cases around Argus some years back. It seems to have dropped off, as these things sometimes do, in terms of reliance in, in litigation. And, of course, it is a treaty rather than domestic law, We'll come on to that, I think, probably later in our discussions. But these are, I think, important principles which have become integrated to a large extent into domestic law and I think do have potentially some traction with judges. So I would very firmly keep that convention and those principles in mind when looking at what grounds you may have for a claim. And Stephen, in terms of arguments that you think might gain traction with a judge hearing a kind of climate change challenge. Are there any other points that spring to mind in particular, other than, you say, kind of relying on the IRS convention? I think, first of all, hard-edged questions of law or hard-edged obligations arising under law and questions of fairness, consultation and so on, I've already mentioned. So I think if you look at the net zero case, the success of that ultimately did concern interpretation of the statutory obligations under the Climate Change Act. I have to confess, I was actually quite sceptical, which now quite a long time ago, when the Climate Change Act was introduced. And 
I thought, well, is this really going to achieve very much or add anything other than a whole heap of information being provided by government? But it turns out that, in fact, it has proved quite a fertile and quite a relatively successful source of claims against the government. And I think, again, the attraction for judges is that's their job description, isn't it, to interpret legislation. So faced with a provision of legislation and an alleged breach of that provision of legislation, they feel quite at home. So I think that that's the sort of argument that will appeal to them. And I think tying in with that, there are also cases where one can say, well, there are mandatory considerations that have to be taken into account. So in the first net zero case, the issue of taking into account the risk of failure and taking into account the quantification of measures and how those will contribute together to achieving the relevant numbers. I think what gets a lot more difficult is arguments which shade into irrationality, really. So failure to place sufficient weight by the decision maker on some factor or failure to have sufficient regard to a particular factor. Judges feel very uncomfortable, I think, when faced with those arguments because essentially they see themselves as being asked to second guess the job of the politicians or the decision makers who took those decisions and they, they don't see that unlike interpreting statutes as being really their job. So I think in summary, it's really hard-edged statutory obligations and well-established legal principles on fairness, which are likely to yield a result. And what about the Paris Agreement? I mean, what role do you think that that treaty can play in these kinds of challenges? You would think, wouldn't you, instinctively, if you're a non-lawyer, rather a lot. And I think that's why a lot of litigants place huge stress on the Paris Convention because they say, well, the government signed up to this. These are targets it's committed itself to. How can it possibly act in an inconsistent way with them in what it's doing domestically? Clearly, that's a hugely attractive and instinctive argument. But as we all know, as a matter of law, it's an unincorporated international treaty like any other international treaty which means that it's a matter for the executive to interpret and to apply. So it sets other objectives, including adaptation. It requires parties to set nationally determined contributions for achieving those objectives in Article 2. Then Parliament's response, of course, has been through the targets which it set originally, an 80% statutory target for carbon emissions by 2050 and then 100% the reduction substituted for that 80% back in 2019. But the Paris Agreement itself, which is the source of those domestic commitments, really falls within a pretty low category of considerations which a court will apply. So it's not like a hard-edged statutory consideration that has to be taken into account. It's really a material consideration, put it that way, which should be taken into account, but how it's taken into account is very much a matter of the discretion of the decision maker. Um, and indeed, arguably, 
take it further, the decision maker may say that within our discretion, we may decide not to take it into account entirely. And because the interpretation and application of the international conventions is a matter of government discretion, essentially, rather surprising, I think, to the public, that may be a valid argument for the government to take. And indeed, Stephen, I mean, this particular issue was considered in the Supreme Court case of Friends of the Earth Limited and Heathrow Airport from 2020. So that case concerned the third runway at Heathrow. And just just to remind our listener, of course, there are three principal categories of consideration. The first one is those that are identified in the statute, either expressly or impliedly, as considerations to which regard must be had. The second are those clearly identified by the statute as considerations to which regard must not be had. And the third category, which is the one that you've touched upon, is in respect of where essentially there's discretion on the decision maker as to whether or not they take that particular consideration into account. And when you're looking at that sort of third category, it is a high legal test. So is that particular consideration so obviously material that failure to take it into account was essentially Wensbury irrational? Yes, that's the nub of it, Stephanie, I agree. And we can note, I think, that in the in relation to that third category, in the Heathrow case, which you've alluded to, the Supreme Court made a couple of further observations, Paris 120 and 121 of their judgment. The first is that unless the consideration is obviously material, according to the Wensbury rationality test that you mentioned, the decision isn't affected by any unlawfulness. They said there is no obligation on the decision maker to work through every consideration which might conceivably be regarded as potentially relevant to the decision they've got to take and positively decide to discount it in the exercise of their discretion. So there's not a sort of tick box approach that's applied by the courts. The decision maker doesn't have to draw up a massively exhaustive list of material considerations and say, well, I'm for this reason, I'm taking this one into account. For this reason, I'm not taking this one into account. That's not the way the courts approach scrutiny of decision making. The second point they made was that the decision maker might in fact turn their mind to a particular consideration falling within that third category, but they may decide to give the consideration no weight in the decision. So yes, it's material, but actually we're giving it really very little or zero weight. And that is what had happened in the Heathrow case. The Supreme Court confirmed that as an unincorporated international treaty fell into that third category, the UK's obligations were given effect to by the Climate Change Act 2008, but it's possible to give the actual treaty zero weight as a material consideration. I mean, Stephen, for many of our listeners, I think, you know, given climate change is one of the greatest challenges that faces humankind, it surely is irrational for it not to be taken into account. Absolutely. I think if you're looking at irrationality in a commonly understood sense, the man in the street or the woman in the street say, well, it's absolutely crazy for the government to have enacted this legislation or signed up this treaty and simply to say, we're not going to take it into account. So what you say is that in common parlance, that may well be right, but as a public law principle, it's, as we know, a very exacting standard. 
goes back to the old Winsby case post war 1948. So unreasonable that no reasonable authority could ever come to it. Or as was put in one case, you discriminate against teachers because they've got red hair, just doing something that no reasonable authority could do. And so what's critical is the decision is so unreasonable, manifestly unreasonable, or as more recent cases said, perverse or absurd, or implying that decision makers, quote, taken leave of their senses, end quote. So it's a hugely exacting standard. Um, you might want to just talk a bit about perhaps the case that is interesting, the that Friends of the Earth case against Secretary of State for International Trade in the Court of Appeal. Yes. So this case was originally before the Divisional Court, which was split. It went up to the Court of Appeal, and I understand that it's now being appealed to the Supreme Court. Essentially, what it's about is Friends of the Earth brought a judicial review challenge of the government's decision to approve export finance worth $1.15 billion dollars in respect of a liquefied natural gas project in Mozambique. Importantly, one of the project's stated aims was to help Mozambique move away from using coal and oil. So the government had decided to take the Paris Agreement into account, and among other factors, considered that the funding of the project was consistent with the UK's obligations. So the principal line of attack was that the government was required to adopt a view of the Paris Agreement that was more than merely tenable, um, there was no rational basis on which the respondents could conclude the decision was compatible with the Paris Agreement and Article 2.1c in particular, which concerns finance flows. And third, the government had failed in their duty of inquiry to quantify indirect emissions, so scope three emissions. The scope three emissions essentially comes from the greenhouse gas protocol and it's an internationally accepted methodology for calculating emissions and has been endorsed by the House of Commons Environment Audit Committee. Essentially, scope three emissions are indirect emissions relating to an organisation's value chain and a consequence of activity of the company. So the Court of Appeal found the decision that the funding of the project was consistent with the UK's obligation was tenable. And that notion of sort of tenability comes from the case of Corner House Research 2008. Essentially, the tenable view approach applies where the proper interpretation of international law is uncertain and means the court needs to only ask where the decision maker has taken a tenable view of what that international law requires, rather than whether the decision maker's view is correct. On the scope three emissions point, it was recognised that they would be higher than scope one and two, but it was not clear to what extent the project would contribute to fossil fuel transition, which is an important point in light of one of the project's objectives. Indeed, the court determined that UKEF's decisions as the quantification of the scope three emissions and the adequacy of the CCR were well within the substantial margin of appreciation allowed to decision makers. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting case, which is worth considering in some detail, because it was really a, I think, a frontal assault on the tenability, irrationality principle, which court ultimately rejected as a line of attack. So if you look at the divisional court, first instance, you had a divergence of views between Lord Justice Stuart Smith and Mrs. Justice Thornton on how you construe the Paris Agreement. So, Lord Justice Stuart Smith, as it was summarised by the Court of 
appeal had concluded that the stated aims of the Paris Agreement were in tension, if not in frank opposition to one another, as he put it. So he thought there was inconsistency inbuilt into that Paris Agreement. He held that the Paris Agreement should be approached on the basis that it did not give rise to hard-edged freestanding obligations, but was, as he put it, a composite package of aims and aspirations that were in tension or, frankly, irreconcilable. Now, I think that Lord Justice Stuart Smith doesn't particularly come from public international background. He's much more used to interpreting contracts and so on. And obviously, if you look at a international agreement such as the Paris Agreement, then it certainly has a lot of conflicting and competing stuff within it. That's the nature of international agreements. Mrs. Justice Thornton's view, I think that her view was the more realistic one of the Paris Agreement, that it did actually give the UK hard-edged obligations. She said that in order for UKEF to demonstrate compliance with Article 2.1c of the agreement, it had to demonstrate funding the project was consistent with a pathway towards limiting global warming to well below 2 degrees C and pursuing efforts to 1.5 degrees C, although the broad wording of the article afforded the UKEF discretion as to how it demonstrated compliance. So if I have to choose between the two interpretations, I'd certainly go with Mrs Justice Fonn. That the Court of Appeal didn't, in fact, agree with the interpretation of either member. The Court of Appeal concluded that Article 2 sets out the purposes of the Paris Agreement and that the specific obligations of parties are to be primarily found elsewhere in a number of articles which the Court listed at paragraph 38 of its judgment, Articles 4, 7, 9, 10, 11, and 13. And then the court said, paragraph 39, Court of Appeal decision, once it's understood that Article 2 reflects the purposes of the Paris Agreement, the other questions before the court fall into focus. And the purposes in Article 2 included holding the increase in global average temperature and also, in the words of the agreement, making finance flows consistent with a pathway towards low greenhouse gas emissions. And those were to be achieved as purposes through, for example, the setting under Article 4 of nationally determined contributions and through developed countries providing financial resources to assist developing countries. And it's against that background the Court said the questions we've set out need to be resolved. So the Court of Appeal was certainly happy to say that the Paris Agreement wasn't just aspirational, it wasn't just a mix of wish lists, that there was a clear objective but as a matter of construction, you had to distinguish between the purposes, the general purposes, and the hard-edged commitments, which may be hard-edged depending on the how you interpret them, which flow from it. So they weren't looking, they said, to interpret by way of construction precise meaning of the convention. It's not a commercial agreement drafted in that way. But what they said is that in an international agreement, the text is the only thing that the state parties can be said to have agreed. And 
Therefore, the domestic courts shouldn't depart from the natural meaning of the words unless the departure plainly reflects the intentions of other participating states. So you can see it's quite a different approach to try and construe a contract generally between two parties. You're just trying to work out, well, what do the two parties intend? There's a degree of creativity that can be brought in to bear on that looking at context and sorts of things to try and derive what the parties' intentions was as embodied in the words of the contract. In the international agreement, the words are all you have. I mean, you can't do that exercise of trying to divine what the intention of however many nation-state parties to a convention was. So you're fixed with the wording, which of course itself, as we know, is going to have been the subject of great compromise and probably a fair amount of fudging in late-night sessions negotiating the wording. So I think perhaps a concluding comment on the Paris Agreement, I think contrary to what most people would imagine is the case, it's of limited value in the context of domestic legal proceedings because of the lack of hard-edged obligations. However, we should note, my understanding is that Friends of the Earth have appealed that Court of Appeal decision to the Supreme Court. I don't know what the status of that is, but there may be more to be said yet on that topic. Thank you, Stephen. So that concludes this episode on the Paris Agreement. Next time, we're going to explore other possible tools in the armory in bringing these kinds of public interest judicial review challenges. Thank you very much for your time today. And thank you, listener. Thank you, Stephanie, and pleasure to discuss these things with you. Goodbye.